These are Nebraska corn farmers. They work in acres, not hours, harvesting the energy and climate solutions the world needs. We are proud to stand with you. The success of tomorrow's soy industry depends on the actions we take today. The future is here, and the time to move is now. Market Journal, Television for Agricultural Business Decisions is a presentation of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln's Institute of Agriculture and Natural Resources in partnership with the Nebraska Rural Radio Association. Promotional support provided by the Nebraska Farmer Magazine and partial funding provided by the Nebraska Soybean Board and the Nebraska Corn Board. Well, hi everyone, I'm Brian Stuskit and thank you very much for joining us today on Market Journal. Well, we are taking advantage of the beautiful weather here this week and we join you today from Briggs Feed Yard, not far from Seward, Nebraska. Mike Briggs is going to join us here in a bit to give us his thoughts when it comes to the cattle markets. Also on today's program, we have some tips when it comes to setting your planter up for the upcoming growing season. We'll also dive into the data when it comes to the recently released Census of Agriculture, give you the Nebraska perspective. Those stories are standing by, but first. The U.S. Department of Agriculture has reopened sign up for the Continuous Conservation Reserve Program. Agricultural producers who are interested in the program may submit their applications now. Alex McAvicka brings us the details. CRP was signed into law in 1985. It's one of the largest voluntary private land conservation programs in the United States. It was originally intended to primarily control soil erosion and potentially stabilize commodity prices by taking marginal lands out of production. The program has evolved over the years, and the USDA says it provides many conservation and economic benefits. Back in November of last year, President Joe Biden signed into law H.R. 6363. It's called the Further Continuing Appropriations and Other Extensions Act, and that extended the Agricultural Improvement Act of 2018 through September 30th of this year, more commonly known as the 2018 Farm Bill. This extension allows authorized programs, including CRP, to continue operating. To submit an offer, producers need to contact their local Farm Service Agency office by July 31st of this year in order to have an offer effective by October 1st. To ensure enrollment acreages do not exceed the statutory cap, FSA will accept offers from producers on a first-come, first-served basis and then return offers for approval in batches throughout the year. In a similar note, FSA water quality practices like prairie strips, grassed waterways, and wetlands will receive an additional 20% incentive. USDA says these buffer practices have a positive impact on water quality. The Climate Smart Practice Incentive, launched in 2021, is also available in that continuous sign-up. The Water Quality Practice Incentive builds on other improvements to continuous CRP that were made back in 2021. FSA said they've also improved the Conservation Reserve Enhancement Program by creating flexibilities within the program for partners to provide matching funds in the form of cash, in-kind contributions, or technical assistance in adding staff to work directly with partners. It also said they expanded opportunities for tribal nations to participate, beginning with three tribal nations in the Great Plains, the Cheyenne River, Ogallala, and Rosebud Sioux Tribes for the first time ever. That was intended, they said, to help conserve, maintain, and improve grassland productivity while reducing soil erosion and enhancing wildlife habitat. 
Now, if you'd like additional information on enrollment options within the Continuous Conservation Reserve Program, you can find several links we've posted along with this story over on the Market Journal homepage. The U.S. Department of Agriculture recently released the data from the 2022 Census of Agriculture. There are some interesting numbers from within it. For example, on the U.S. side of things, the U.S. lost more than 140,000 farms between 2017 and 2022. With over 6 million data points, there's a lot of information to share. I sat down with the Regional Director for the National Agricultural Statistics Service to learn about the current state of the Nebraska ag industry. We have data from the 2022 Census of Agriculture, and today we're going to break that down with Nick Streff. He's the Regional Director for the U.S. Department of Agriculture and National Agricultural Statistics Service, focusing on the state of Nebraska. Nick, thank you very much for your time. We appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. Well, as we look at the data, of course, there's the national things, but we want to zero in and, and share with our viewers and our listeners today what's happening when it comes to the Nebraska ag landscape. As you look at all the data available, what are some of the biggest things that come to mind for 2022? Well, the great thing about the census is, is when we get the data points on age of farmer, size of farm, all those other pieces, you know, during the regular years, you know, NAS has the production data, but this is a chance we can get the demographics and we can really get that detailed farm data. So something to look at would be, you know, age of producer. We're sitting at 56.9 years for Nebraska, which is uh, up from 56.4. So just kind of those data points that we can show, you know, what our farmers and ranchers are looking like. I think it always surprises people to see the average size of a farm in Nebraska. It's shy of a thousand acres, correct? Correct. Yeah, our average farm size uh, from the 2022 census data would be 989 acres, which is up a little bit. As you look at the counties, I think there's a few counties in particular you pull out. Uh, for example, Lancaster County has the most farms, correct? Correct. Yep, they're, they're our top uh, top 10, the number one for a number of producers. Yep. Okay. And uh, up in northeast Nebraska, Cumming County has a title of itself. Yeah, t uh, for Cumming County, they have the largest value of agri agricultural production sales. Okay. So you break down this data. You've been pouring over it for months. You mentioned the age of a Nebraska producer, the size of the farm. What else uh, stuck out to you this time around? Well, I think it's neat to note in Nebraska the kind of the, the mix between agriculture uh, crop sales and livestock sales. So when we're looking at that for Nebraska, livestock sales make up 52% of the total value of sales and crops at 48%. So a really good kind of mix there, kind of a level playing field for the most part. So just showing that Nebraska producers, you know, are big in livestock and crops. I think back in 2017, there was an emphasis put on making sure you count all folks involved in the farm, particularly women, and that uh, stat was shared in 2017. Of course, you measure that again here in 2022. What's that number look like for Nebraska? So for Nebraska, yes, for our female producers, we're at just over 26,000. They make up over 33% of all producers, and that is a number we started focusing on in 2017, and we didn't change the question for this time around. It's useful for people who sit in chairs here on my side of the desk, Nick, to be able to compare things year to year, I suppose every five years where the census comes out. As you looked at trends on the Nebraska ag industry, anything in particular fascinates you, whether it's the size of the farm or something like that? Uh, for some things that I like to look at is especially, you know, some of the broadband initiatives that Nebraska mm -hmm. has. So the census will provide county level data on internet connections. So 83% of Nebraska farms and ranches have internet access. And we actually break it down by type of internet access. We don't show speed, but we do show type because we do know producers need access to that uh, type of uh, system. How do people use this data? Well, when it comes to that, there, uh, there are the interesting stats, you know, but then when it comes to writing the farm bill programs or when it comes to uh, disaster assistance, how many farms are in these counties that could have been affected by that tornado or how many cattle are out there if you're looking at a disease outbreak? The census is the best place to come for that data. So 
the legislatures so policymakers can make programs that can assist farmers and ranchers. There's always the appeal when the census is out, hey, this is why it's important you fill it out as we talk about that. How many people respond to the Nebraska census of ag and how has that number fluctuated over the years? Uh, well, generally in survey work, it goes up and down. Yeah. Uh, our shorter surveys, we get a great response rate on. Some yeah. of our crop production surveys, we're up over 70%. For the census, it's a longer survey. So we were up in that 58% range for response rate, just under the national response rate. Okay. Anything else on the census of ag you want to point out today, Nick? Well, just one thing I want to point out is thanks to the farmers and ranchers that took the time to complete this data. You know, it's a great data set. It's going to something we're going to rely on for the next five years. And then after that, we just kind of want to, you know, look at some of the other NAS programs that are coming up. My right, thanks to Nick for joining us earlier in the week. One other thing we want to mention, USDA is currently gearing up to contact producers to determine their plans for the upcoming growing season. NAS has mailed out a survey asking producers in the state about types of crops they intend to plant, as well as the number of acres that producers are intending to plant. You can respond online or by mail. What well, is that time of the program where we turn our attention over the markets and joining us now at Briggs Feed Yard is Mr. Mike Briggs himself. Mike, good to see you. Mike, good to see you. Well, I'm sure you had a bit of a challenging January, but how about this February January weather? is awful, but how about how about this? No coat in February. I'm all for it. Okay, 2024. How does it feel to be a feedlot operator right now? January, um, it was bad. That's that's about as bad a weather as I've seen since the early 80s. It was just horrible. Lost a lot of cattle, just annihilated the feed yard, and it was disappointing because things were going so well. I, I was bemoaning to friends the other day, it's, it's so discouraging when just three weeks of bad weather wipes out the work of six or nine months. You know, we're just getting to where we're marketing some of our grass cattle, so you got a nine month deal in there, and three weeks just wipes it all out. I was gonna make money like a packer, but not anymore. <laughs> what was the biggest challenge? You're referencing that cold snap and uh, the winter conditions. Well, for me personally, I couldn't do anything to help the animals. It, there was so much, it rained, before it so it was muddy underneath it did not freeze got so much snow on top of it then and then it got so cold you couldn't take an implement out there because you'd break the implement because it was so cold and you just couldn't do anything for these poor cattle they just had to stand there and take it and that was really difficult and we're working on it hard now but that's you know as somebody that raises animals for a living and you know my job is caring for animals and not being able to do something for them of real sub substance really bothered me. Well, but it's and it's left us with a lot of work to do going into the spring. Yeah, Paige just kind of turned here as we enjoy this nice February weather. You and I talking here on Wednesdays. Look at the cattle markets. There's a lot of optimism right now. A lot of optimism. Um, I'm, I think the cattle markets, maybe I'm wrong. The markets are supposedly never wrong. We seem a little out of step here. We've We've kind of run this thing up during a time period where beef demand is terrible. January and February are terrible for beef demand. Now I read this, I have no documentation other than that I read that they're saying we are at our apex of short numbers right now. Find that hard to believe. I think late spring, early summer is going to be worse. But if we're at this small of a level right now, it's going to get really interesting. My nutritionist told me in eight years, He's never seen this many empty pens at feed yards. So I guess it's coming. Um, there's a lot of, lot of things that are gonna happen because of this. The, thing, the most thing that's interesting to me is what's gonna happen Friday. We get a cattle on feed report. 
Market's already going up in anticipation. It's probably going to be bullish. The question is how bullish is it going to be? You're going to see extremely small placements because that got off a winter in January. Are those placements so low that you actually drag the cattle on feed under 100%? Because if you drag it under 100% this early, it's not coming back over that for quite a while. And that's going to pinch consumers. There's a, obviously, you are bullish sentiment in the cattle markets because of those factors you point out. I'm cautious, though, but go ahead. <laughs> okay. Over the next six months, how high could we get at this point with those factors? To me, the big deal is the economy and what the person that we have that allegedly has the title of president is going to do because this economy, on my mind, is on thin ice. Now, people say, well, why would you say that? Well, because employment is starting to stumble, interest rates are not going to come down, consumers are getting pressed, there's still inflation. Well, you want to see inflation, it's coming in beef. And that is what's going to hurt. You cannot run this board to 210 or 220, like some people say. In this economy, people aren't going to have the money to pay for it, I don't think. But we've said that for years. We've said years and years they'd never pay for it, they'd never pay for it and look where we are now. So I could be completely wrong. Conversation that I'm sure is going to continue to develop in the cattle industry right now is beef imports. USDA predicting record imports of beef into the U.S. because of the high prices we see domestically. Your thoughts there? Well, you, can't, you know, people don't, producers don't like it because they're like, well, just pay me more for mine. <laughs> well, you've got to worry about the American consumer, so you're going to have to bring some of that beef in. Now, everybody needs to remember that's typically not steaks and roasts and things like that. That's meat, that's lean beef for trimmings, stuff to blend into burger. You know, it's just a fact of life. There's nothing you can do about it. It's, it's typical supply and demand. Well, the January inventory report comes out. That one comes out twice a year. It gives people a sentiment of uh, how many cattle are truly out there. Mm -hmm. We're at historic lows dating back several, several decades at this point. As you look at the herd rebuilding process, we just came from the cattle con. Everybody has their thoughts on how we can rebuild better or differently. Where do you see winners and losers in the cattle supply chain? Well, the winner at this point is gonna be the rancher, in my mind, provided it rains, because he's gonna get extremely high record prices for his what he raises. And that's great for him. He's also gonna pay record prices for replacement females and record prices for bulls. So I think they're gonna be good. The Packers gonna be the biggest loser right now. Because, and, and what I don't want to see is it gets so bad that they start closing plants. You know, these new plants that are trying to be built, they're, they're starting at the absolute worst time. So I don't know what happens to that. You'd hate to have them just get leveled or whatever. So um, I think it's going to be really difficult moving forward for the Packer. He, in turn, is going to put downward pressure on us. He's going to try to keep us in a headlock as best he can demand's going to be what the pull through of the product is what's going to determine how well this works or how bad it gets if there's no demand on the other end we're going to get crushed expected to help profit margins over the next year lower feed prices in particular corn usda projecting 480 here the first part of the year then 440 is their average for what they expect corn prices how about hay supplies how are you sitting here in nebraska you know that has not been an issue this year you had enough rain in western Nebraska, they had enough hay, so they weren't drawing hay away from this part of the country. I've had no problem with hay. In fact, the price of hay has continued to go down. Now, it's still too expensive compared to corn, but it's gone down considerably and it, it's not really an issue. 
My thanks to Mike for allowing us to uh, come on out here to Briggs Feed Yard and get his thoughts on the cattle markets. Coming up next week, we'll be joined by Shaylee Stewart of DTN. As always, we invite your questions here on the show. So if you have one to ask Shaylee, go ahead and email us and we'll pass your question along. Well, Ed Lammers farms in Cedar County with his wife, Michelle, and son, Kyle, raising corn, alfalfa, rye, cattle, and soybeans. Lammers is the new vice chair of the United Soybean Board, but over the years, he's been involved in numerous other farm organizations. The Cedar County farmer advises producers from across the country to get involved in local and regional committees and organizations. We need to tell our story, Lammers said, or someone else will. That's the real issue. You can read more from Lammers in the February issue of the Nebraska Farmer. Well, let's check in on now with Worcester weather himself. That is Eric Hunty standing by our market journal meteorologist. Eric, some beautiful weather again this week. So I ask you again, is this our fake spring or some winter-like temperatures going to return in the forecast soon? <laughs> Thanks, Bryce. I see spring and winter in the forecast for us next week. Let's start with the spring. So Sunday, Monday, going to be quite warm across the state. Monday especially, I think parts of southeastern Nebraska may even push 75 to 77 degrees. Temperatures up in the 70s, probably as far north as the Nebraska-South Dakota border. Probably a little bit cooler out here in the Panhandle. As we move into Tuesday, things should probably cool off a little bit as the cold front moves through. Uh, but before that, though, we are going to be accumulating some GDDs at base 50. So again, things have already kind of started waking up a little bit this week. Uh, and early next week, it looks like with temperatures getting to the 70s for a couple of days, we're really going to start to see some things wake up and maybe potentially in some winter wheat in parts of southern Nebraska. As we head into the early portion next week, we'll have a sharp trough moving to the western U.S. by early Tuesday. And that will start quickly moving its way into the central U.S. Right now, it looks like that storm system will probably develop further to our east. So that's probably going to put us out of the area of the heaviest precipitation and probably at a low or to no risk of severe weather. That's how things look like right now on Wednesday. And it does look like we will have a chance of light snow in parts of state, central and eastern Nebraska, Tuesday night and Wednesday morning. If this storm slows up a little bit and the low pressure develops closer to Colorado and southwest Kansas, that would open up flow for more of the state. And eastern Nebraska could definitely be in store for some more precipitation, maybe even for some severe weather. So again, I would pay close attention to the forecast as we head in the early portion next week. Right now, though, I think it looks like most of the heavier precipitation will be to our east. Uh, it will be relatively warm. So once that cold front goes through, it will be much colder next Wednesday. But by Friday, Saturday next week, it looks like we'll be bouncing back into uh, warm territory, probably back in the 60s for a good portion of the state by next Saturday. Uh, so we are expecting above average temperatures to continue through early March. Uh, but it looks like we are entering a more active pattern, though. So I do anticipate us having uh, more periodic spells of cooler weather as we head into the month of March. And we are probably going to remain a little bit stormier. Uh, again, the CPC in the 8 to 14 day outlook going into early March. Uh, is showing above average precipitation being a possibility for a good portion of the state. Uh, so this next round doesn't really give us much. There's a, going to be subsequent rounds of precipitation uh, that will be possible across the state. Uh, recent precipitation, again, uh, some snow across the northern portion of the state late last week. Uh, other places just saw minimal precipitation. Again, it's been relatively dry, especially across eastern Nebraska the last two or three weeks. Uh, we've had very, very little snowfall across most of the state this month, uh, with the exception of the Panhandle parts of north central Nebraska. Uh, so again, we have uh, setting uh, probably record low snowfall totals here uh, across a lot of the I-80 corridor from Grand Island over toward Omaha. Uh, in terms of where we've gone for drought here in the last six months, so let's just start with the water year from basically October 1st through now. Uh, we have seen some degradation in parts of southeastern Nebraska, and this is mostly a reflection of how dry it was last fall. Kind of a similar story out there in parts of southwestern Nebraska. Uh, but again, we've seen a lot of state, a lot of the state has seen improvement uh, with the biggest improvements coming here in northeastern Nebraska. 
A lot of this is a reflection of we've really, really improved soil moisture uh, in this part of the state since last fall. Now, again, we still have a way to go before you're fully recharged, and we are seeing things kind of tick back downward a little bit here across east, central, and southeastern Nebraska, where we've been well above average and dry here in the last two or three weeks. So we are going to start needing more precipitation moving in the region with these warm temperatures. Soil temperatures right now, again, are quite warm across most of the state, uh, mostly mid-30s to low-40s. Uh, last week I showed the precipitation outlooks for the spring. Right now, uh, right, it looks like uh, CPC is calling for kind of equal chances for warm and cold for our area for the spring. Uh, the NMME, though, is showing temperatures being a little bit more mild. I'm banking on it being a little bit more mild most of the spring. Thanks. Back to you, Bryce. All right, thank you very much for that update, Eric. We sure appreciate it. I asked this this week, and the response was yes. I said, do you have your planter out yet? Apparently a lot of people do thus far as we uh, enjoy these spring-like temperatures. So what is important when you're looking at that planter before we head out into the planting season? Well, we've got an extension expert standing by with the answer to that question. Bill Dodd brings us this story. It's almost time to get those planters out of the shop and into the fields. However, if you're practicing no-till farming, there are a few steps you can take before planting season arrives to help ensure that the process goes as smoothly as possible. According to Extension Engineer Paul Yasa, there are four major factors that you should take into account when getting your planter geared up for planting. The first step is to ensure that residue won't be an issue when you get into the field. When it comes to cut or handle residue, some producers like to handle residue, put the residue mover on, push it out of the way. Uh, unfortunately, here in Nebraska, the wind blows and some of that residue is going to blow back on the row. I'd rather just simply cut the residue. Uh, corn planters today have double disc openers. We need to make sure those two disc openers are sharp, working together. And there's directions in the owner's manual how much blade contact they should have. But we need about an uh, inch and a half to two inches of blade contact such that we can cut that residue. And that residue then is nicely cut. The good news is that seedling coming up will come up through that same slot you just cut to put the seed in the ground. Unfortunately, if we use residue movers, we push the residue off. Yes, the seed goes in the ground nicely, but if some residue blows back, there's no slice cut through that residue and the seedling has trouble coming up. So I like to cut the residue with the double disc opener. Next up on the checklist is to make certain that you're hitting the proper planting depth and achieving uniform depth control. This will rely heavily on making sure that you have the proper amount of down pressure to place seed deep enough into the ground. If I've, I saw a failure in early days of no-till, people didn't have enough down pressure and weight on the planter unit to get that seed down in the ground. Uh, we cut through residue, we cut through some firm soil, we're in no-till or ridge-till, and we need to make sure we got enough down pressure to do that. And so I want to make sure that those discs are sharp working together, it makes it easier to cut, but then enough weight on those openers or springs to transfer weight from the toolbar to those discs so we can get it down in the ground at the desired seeding depth. When it comes to the uniformity of depth control, it's really critical for corn. Uh, you want all the corn plants to come up at the same time. You don't want one ahead of the neighbor. Uh, he's going to be outcompeting the neighbor when it comes to resources for growth. So the more uniform stand you can have, the better yield you'll have because of more uniform use of the resources. Now, something like soybeans, a little more forgiving. Soybeans care more what uh, is going on during pod field in the fall, so early in the spring, not near as critical. But for corn planters, definitely get that tuned up for uniform depth control. The third step of getting your planter ready will be to ensure that you're getting the proper seed to soil contact. Depending on the type of planter you're utilizing, step three may be completed along with the fourth step of closing the seed V. Well, we got some brands of planters, like the John Deere will do uh, seed to soil contact and close the seed V steps three and four at the same time with the angle closing wheels. 
we want to evaluate those steps separately. If the seed to soil contact is already there, we don't want to tighten those wheels to close the seed V because we'll actually over tighten, actually pack the seed V such as seedling roots have trouble getting out of there. Now, some other brands of planters do it different ways. Uh, our Case IH planter, for instance, we close the seed V with some crumbling discs on the planter I have here, and then firm it down from the top of the press wheel and back. But I also added a device called a Keaton seed firmer on there that pushes the seed down to give us some seed to soil contact. Now we can put a Keaton on any brand of planter out there to help get seed to soil contact. But the place I like it more is a uniform depth control because it gets all the seeds to the bottom of the seed V. Step four is closing that seed V. And like I said, on the wheels that do both, like John Deere, Kinsey, White, don't over tighten if the seed to soil contact's already there. When it comes to closing the CV, I want to make sure the tail stock of that planter is running level. Those angled wheels have a pinch to them then to bring the soil together. If I'm planting a little bit too shallow or my planter is nose down, those uh, tail stock where those wheels are mounted is not level. It's not going to be near as effective closing the CV. Once you're ready to roll, the only thing left to do is get the planter out and conduct a few tests running on the ground about two to three weeks before planting begins. This will help ensure that you have plenty of time to work out any potential problems that may arise. So I take it to the field two to three weeks early, drop the planter in the ground, get the pro proper level on the planter such that the toolbar is right height and the parallel lengths are running parallel to the ground, and the planter a little bit tail down maybe in back, rather nose down. Then do what I call blind planting, just drive forward a little ways, stop with the planter in the ground, and then go check my depth gauge wheels. If I'm truly gauging planting depth, there'll be firm contact with the ground. So just take a hold of them and try to rotate them. Now, if I can rotate it, spin it freely, it means I need more down pressure. I either tighten the springs or increase the air if you got airbags, or just physically add weight. We got sand and insecticide hopper on this planter just to make sure the planter gets down in the ground. Now, conversely, if I take a hold of those wheels and I can't budge them a bit, they are too firm in contact with the ground, they'll actually be packing the soil down around the seed V and we're going to have trouble getting seedling roots out of there. So that means just because it works two to three weeks ahead of time, I still check it from field to field because conditions change, the residues change, the soil moisture changes. Now another reason to do it two weeks ahead of time, it shakes up the neighbors. They don't know the planter's empty and they think they're two to three weeks behind if you're already in the field. And again, it's the kind of thing, it gives you time to react. Uh, to fix the problems. If it was that first day of planting, you're going to have some problems. Uh, you either get delayed or you're going to do half a job because you didn't fix it right. With spring right around the corner, now is the time to ensure that your planter is ready to roll when planting conditions are optimal. Following these steps could save you a headache or two down the road. Reporting for Market Journal, I'm Bill Dodd. Thanks for that story, Bill. We sure appreciate it. One other piece of advice that Paul wanted us to share with you today. When you aren't ready to put seed in the ground, if conditions happen to be a bit too wet, don't feel like you have to mud that seed into the ground to get it done a bit earlier. He says waiting an extra day or two for more optimal conditions could result in a better stand for your crop as well as higher yields. If you'd like more insights from Paul on planter setup or perhaps some no-till farming practices, you can learn all of that by visiting cropwatch.unl.edu. We've also posted a direct link over on the Market Journal homepage. Before we wrap up our time today, we salute the blue and gold as this past week was National FFA Week. Check out this photo. It's our photo of the week. 
Scenes like this appeared all across the region as students drove their tractors to school. This is our photo of the week. We salute the Pleasanton FFA chapter. Looks like the young kids too enjoyed that parade of tractors. That is going to do it for this week's episode of Market Journal. Appreciate you joining us. Invite you to join us next week on the program. But until then, I'm Bryce Duskett, wishing you a safe. Join Market Journal online at marketjournal.unl.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Promotional support is provided by the Nebraska Farmer Magazine. Market Journal is produced by the University of Nebraska-Lincoln's Institute of Agriculture and Natural Resources.